All right, please grab a Bible or a Bible app and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be in the end. We're closing out chapter 7 today. We're going to be in verses 20 through 28. And I forgot to put this guy up. As you guys are heading that direction, Hebrews 7, 20 through 28. Uh, to kind of just recap, chapter 7 has been all about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, specifically as it's compared with uh, the priesthood of Levi, of the Levitical priests that descended through Aaron. So we've been looking at that the last couple of weeks. And today's passage, it really ties together everything that we've seen so far in chapter 7, and it puts a bow on this topic of priesthood. It's sort of the crescendo, as I said last week, the culmination of a lot of these themes we've been looking at. And then just so you know where we're heading, the next few chapters, 8, 9, and the first half of 10, are going to really focus in more on not just the priesthood of Jesus Christ, but on his sacrifice in particular and what that means for us, his sacrifice for us. Uh, so that's what we're going to be looking at in the next couple of weeks. Um, I mentioned this last week, but uh, on Friday I had a memorial service that I attended with two of my kids. We drove up to Fort Worth and drove back and had kind of an eventful Friday. But uh, we went to my friend Brian's memorial service, which was held at our old church up in Fort Worth, where I'd worked for for several years. And uh, while I was up there, I saw an old friend of mine that I used to work with. And uh, after the service, we were catching up on life and just kind of seeing what his life up in Fort Worth was like at, at our old church. And come to find out, uh, his son, who I knew from just, just a kid uh, who's now in his 20s, uh, found out that his, his wife of five years has filed for divorce. Um, so that was kind of a shock. And he's back living with them uh, I, I found out that, uh, that there was a growing rift between some of the younger leadership and some of the older leadership at my old church uh, that was brought on by some of the issues in the constellation of some of the racial injustice, racial justice themes of the past year that we've been seeing. Uh, and it's, it's caused a rift uh, between some of the younger and some of the older folks at, at church there in leadership. Um, so anyway, it was, it was not a totally depressing conversation, but... Uh, it was just sort of an eye-opener. As I, we were driving back uh, to Austin after the service, I just kind of was thinking about all this, and I was struck by the, the fact that very few things in this life are absolutely guaranteed. And that, that strikes us at different times and different circumstances of our life, that God never guarantees that we will live and, 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 and serve in peaceful churches, churches that never have any relational conflicts. Or, or peaceful families, for that matter. He, he never guarantees that our, our spouses will be faithful, that, that, that we will be able to persevere in different situations in life. Well, I, I take that back. He does promise that if we trust in him, we can persevere. That's the whole theme of Hebrews. But he doesn't promise necessarily the outcomes that we're expecting on the front end of a lot of these life circumstances. There's not a guarantee that comes with certain things in life like that. Or even full medical recoveries. I was up there at a funeral for a friend who had, had just turned 65 years old. Relatively young, but had succumbed to an infection that he'd gotten when he fell. And, and his life, his physical life, at least this life, was over very quickly. But I want you to listen to this, okay? Because I can go on and on about how impermanent things are in this life. But even though most of life's circumstances do not come with a guarantee from God, the most important things in life do. 
Most things in life don't come with a guarantee, but the most important things absolutely do. That's what we're going to be looking at today. The author of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear for us that the benefits of believing in Christ are absolutely 100% guaranteed. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. If we can hold on to the guarantee of God in Christ, then we can and we will persevere without knowing what's around every corner, without having necessarily a guarantee for every aspect of our life. We won't be uh, paralyzed by fears and anxieties of not knowing what the future holds because we can hold on to the guarantee that we have from God in Christ. And the author of Hebrews wants us to know that in Christ, and this is just the big idea for today, in Christ we can rest assured In Christ, we can rest assured. Today's passage targets two things that give us absolute confidence in, absolute assurance in Christ, his permanence and his perfection. And again, these are themes we've seen over the last couple weeks, but we're going to see a crescendo on these themes as we look at the passages today. So in Christ, we can rest assured because of his permanence, because he is permanent. Look at verses 20 to 25. And here we see two aspects of Christ's permanence. His priesthood will never end. He's permanent in that sense. And his priesthood began with God's unbreakable promise to Christ. That he would have a never-ending priesthood. So first, Christ has an unbreakable promise from God. Christ has obtained an absolutely airtight, unbreakable promise from God. Look at verses 20 to 22. I'll read in the NASB. It says, And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, he's talking about the priesthood of Jesus, inasmuch as it was not without an oath, and then this sort of parenthetical, for they, the Levitical priests, indeed became priests without an oath. But he, Jesus, with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more, also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. In verses 20 and 21, we see that the ongoing existence of the Levitical priesthood itself was never guaranteed by God. It was was implemented through the law of Moses, but it never came with an oath, a guarantee. And, And of course, the ongoing service of particular priests was certainly never guaranteed. But in verses 20 and 22, we see that Jesus's priesthood is guaranteed. And the author quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4, that we've looked at several times. It's really the main, uh, one of the main passages of the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews looks at all throughout the letter. But specifically in chapter 7, he really hones in on this Psalm 110. And specifically in verse 4, and we, we see this fact pointed out. Since Jesus's priesthood is guaranteed by God then he has become, as it says, the guarantee of a better covenant. That is a covenant that's better than the old covenant that God provided through Moses, through the law. And uh, Paul Ellingworth, who wrote a a really (laughs) hard to read, but great uh, commentary on Hebrews, uh, he defines covenant in this context, because that word can have different meanings in different contexts. But right here in this context, he defines it as, and it's going to come up on the screen, so I want you to kind of noodle on this. But he says, a covenant is a free manifestation of divine love. 
It's not coerced. It's not forced. It's a free manifestation of divine love institutionalized in what he calls an economy whose stability and consummation are, are guaranteed and he's, he, by a cultic ratification. That's just a fancy way of saying by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And the aim of the covenant is to make men live in communion with God to impart to them the treasure of grace and the heavenly inheritance. Now that is a mouthful, but what I want you to focus in on that definition is that it's God in his grace and love for us who, who creates a system, a context, by which we can be in a relationship with him as sinful men and women. And not only that, but he absolutely guarantees that it will come to full consummation, that we will get the fullness of our inheritance in Christ. And it's, it's our participation in, in this new covenant that the author's talking about that comes through our faith in Jesus Christ. And he will never fail in his role as the mediator of all the blessings of this better covenant. Guys, that's what we're talking about today with the priest of Jesus Christ, that, that he is not just our mediator, but he can never fail in that role as our mediator to mediate the fullness of all that God has promised to us, our full inheritance in Christ, that it will come to consummation. It will come to fulfillment and for eternity. He cannot fail in that sense. So because of God's unbreakable promise to Christ, isn't this cool? God gives us a promise by giving a promise to Christ, his son, the Messiah. Because of that unbreakable promise, Jesus himself is our assurance that we will as Ellingworth puts it, live in communion with God both now and forever and receive the treasure of grace and the heavenly inheritance. That's what it means, guys, to be a co-heir with Christ. If we can be sure that he's going to receive his inheritance from God the Father, so too can we be sure that we will in Christ receive an inheritance as co-heirs with him. That is beautiful. And it's something we can base our lives on. So first of all, the permanence of Christ is established by God's unbreakable promise. Second, Christ has an unending priesthood. And this goes along with it, right? This is exactly what God promised to him uh, in Psalm 110.4 that we just looked at when he said, you will be a priest forever. That's a promise. So let's look at verses 23 to 25 in our passage. It says, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. I think uh, Josephus, who is an uh, ancient uh, Jewish historian, said that there was like, by his count, there were 83 high priests from Aaron all the way down to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So even the high priests, they, they had to exist in greater numbers because it says, um, but Jesus... I'm sorry, they were prevented by death from continuing. Well, that makes sense. Then verse 24, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. He doesn't have to hand it off to someone else so he can go die. And he's not disqualified from serving that role because of sin. So he holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 25, therefore, so this is the conclusion he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, for us. In verse 20, 
23, we see that the former priests from the tribe of Levi died, right? The, the author wants to make that painfully obvious to us, that they could not continue. And this obviously prevented them from living out this priestly service on behalf of God's people. And they had to be replaced, as I said, over and over again by a fresh crop of priests, including the high priest. And then in verses 24 and 25, we see that on the other hand, Jesus doesn't have this problem because he continues forever. Think about this with me. In the incarnation, the Son of God, who had existed from eternity past, who had always existed in perfect fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit, the Son of God, God the Son, in the incarnation, became a man, became a human being with a body of flesh and blood so that he could suffer and die for our sins. That blows my mind. He took on a body so that he could sacrifice it. He took on a body of blood so that he could pour it out to pay for the penalty of our sins. But in his resurrection, he was raised to new, everlasting life, never to face death again. And in that sense, he had truly conquered death. Death can never hold Jesus. Death can never overtake him. He has defeated it. Jesus sacrificed himself. Think about this. He sacrificed himself so that he could become our great high priest in heaven. And now that he cannot die as our great high priest, we can rest assured that his salvation is everlasting because his intercession, he intercedes for us because that's everlasting. He's always there to intercede for us at the right hand of God the Father. So let's take a closer look at those two facets of his priestly service. In verse 25, we're told that Jesus is able, and then I'll quote it, to save forever those who draw near to God through him. And that word, the Greek term that's translated there is forever. It may say to the utmost or uttermost or completely in your, in your translation. But that, that Greek term can carry both meanings of time in terms of forever, as well as in uh, the degree of our salvation. In other words, to the utmost, completely fulfilled to the utmost. So the inspired author wants us He wants us to rest assured. He doesn't want to be frantic and and, and worried about our, our salvation. He wants us to rest assured that Jesus saves us from our sin and from death totally, completely, and forever so that we can draw near to God in an eternal, uninterrupted relationship with him. If we can't walk away from passages like this in a letter like this, without feeling this incredible sense of peace about the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, then we have missed it. We need to go back and read it again and again and again until that sinks in. And the reason for all of what I just said is the, is the fact that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. His intercession here. And when we think of intercession, especially if you grew up around a church context, you think of intercession, you think of what? You think of prayer, right? When you intercede for someone to God, you're praying on their behalf. And that's good and that's wonderful. We're called to do that. But in this context, the intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our great high priest who sits at the right hand of God the Father Yes, it includes him praying on our behalf, as we see in Paul's 
uh, the letter to the Romans in chapter 8, we see almost exactly the same phrase where Jesus intercedes for us. But it, it really, generally speaking, it, it's, it's referring to Jesus being able to help us forever, at any moment, forever, in our time of need. He's able to help us in our needs for eternity. He intercedes. He always lives to make intercession for us. And of course, that involves praying on our behalf and asking God the Father for things on our behalf, according to his will. Uh, In Christ, we can rest assured because of his permanence. Uh, Yesterday, I was reading the obituary for my friend, so I didn't get to see it on the front end of of the memorial service. So I went online, I read it yesterday. And um, at the very top, like right, even above his picture, when it just showed his name, there was a quote at the very top that they get to later in the obituary. But it said this, and it's going to come up on the screen. It said about my friend Brian, he leaned not on the empty allure of worldly promises, but on the eternal assurance and spiritual comfort found in the Bible. If I could write a synopsis of my friend's life, at least for the, the years that I knew him, the last 17 years, I, I couldn't get much better than that. He leaned not on the empty allure of worldly promises, but on the eternal assurance and spiritual comfort found in the Bible. And if you knew him, you would know how perfect it was to include that sentence in his obituary. He grew up in Joliet, Illinois, And he was a very competitive athlete in both swimming and tennis. In fact, uh, he was one of the top-ranked high school tennis players in Illinois in his day. Uh, However, later in life, he developed, uh, and I learned a lot of this just reading his his obituary. I knew he was disabled, but I didn't know that it came later in life after a really promising career in athletics, but particularly in tennis. He was a a rock star of a tennis player. Went on, I think, to play tennis at TCU in college. But later on in his life, he developed uh, this this life-altering disability that got worse and worse. It was degenerative, so it got worse and worse throughout the years. But instead of complaining about his increasing immobility and his chronic pain he was almost always in pain instead of complaining about that and grumbling you know what he did he poured himself into his relationship with God and his relationship with other people Uh, he's the guy at our men's ministry up in Fort Worth that if a new person came we would call him and say Brian can you meet can you grab coffee with so-and-so he was on it he loved it he poured into those relationships he studied God's word And he helped others to understand it. He shared his faith with and constantly encouraged others, including me. He was one of our greatest encouragers in the last six years since we moved down here to church plant. The emails, he would read our updates and comment on them. He would send us notes. He provided financial support. He prayed for us, responded to our prayer requests. He was one of the biggest supporters we had over these last six years. So despite the impermanence of his health, remember the allure of worldly promises? Instead of hanging on thinking that the world somehow promised that he would be mobile and that he would uh, be, be free of pain his whole life, instead of trying to cling on to something that could never be permanent, his physical abilities, his health, he was able to influence others instead and glorify God because he leaned hard on the eternal assurance that was found in Scripture. And I can attest to that. So where do we go when the things of this life reveal themselves to be 
anything but permanent. Where do we go when our dream, so to speak, is shattered and we're face to face with the reality that nothing in this life, the things of this life are permanent? When our bodies fall apart in various ways, when our car falls apart, there's not a, a day goes by that a light doesn't show up on one of my two vehicles. Yeah, and John, you know what I'm talking about. I know your truck, man. Uh, when our investments fail to meet our expectations, when we invest financially or our time or whatever else we invest, and it just doesn't give us the return on investment that we're expecting. When our sense of, I'll put it in bunny ears, when our sense of security in this life gets rocked, I hope that like my friend Brian, we will run to God's word in those moments Because you see, Scripture reminds us that our life circumstances aren't necessarily certainties. Can I repeat that? Scripture reminds us. It it, it pleads with us to realize this, or else we're going to have sorely unmet expectations and fall into despair. Scripture reminds us that our life circumstances, whatever they are, whether good or bad, aren't necessarily certainties. But scripture also tells us, and please hear me on this, that Jesus Christ is and always will be our great high priest. He he is interceding for us and always will. The benefits of his priestly service on our behalf are intact and always will be. Therefore, we can rest assured knowing that his priesthood is permanent and that our salvation is both certain and secure in Christ. So now let's turn to another important aspect of of Christ. In Christ, we can rest assured because of his perfection. Now, we talked a lot about this last week. But again, there's repetition in the words that the author's using. So once again, we're faced with the perfection of Jesus in in the last uh, verse of our passage today. So we're going to go through it one more time from a little bit different angle. So here in verses 26, 27, and 28, our last three verses, we see Christ described as both the perfect sacrifice on one hand and the perfect son on the other. And I love how those things are wedded together in this context. He's the perfect son, but he's also the perfect sacrifice. We would think the exact opposite. Well, if you're the perfect son, why would you need to be sacrificed? There's so much there. That's another sermon for another day, perhaps. But Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Look at verses 26 and 27. The author writes, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests, talking about the high priests in the the line of Aaron, the Levitical priests, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all. That's such a key term in Hebrews. This he did once for all when he offered up himself. So in verse 26, we see that Jesus was sinless. He was absolutely perfect in that sense. He was holy. That that talks about his devotion to God, set apart and devout in his relationship with God, his worship of God. Uh, It says that he was um, innocent. That's freedom from guile and trickery. It's it's that he's not guilty of these things. And then it says undefiled. That, That speaks to his being untainted or unstained by the world. 
That's usually what that word gets used for in the New Testament, the, the stain of the world. He's unstained by it. And so it, it speaks about him being holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners, which is why all of these things together is why he was able to enter into God's presence. The opposite of these things is why we are unable to enter into the presence of God. But that's why he was able to enter God's presence, having been exalted above the heavens. In his re- not, well, after his resurrection, in his ascension into heaven, and his exaltation at the right hand of the Father, the reason he was able to approach the holiness of God in the heavenly tabernacle was because he was holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners in that sense. So because of his sinless perfection, Jesus was able to enter this heavenly holy of holies without needing a sacrifice for himself. That's so key. He didn't have to sacrifice for himself. He didn't need another sacrifice. He only needed one sacrifice, and that sacrifice was not for him. It was for us. As a result, he presented. He didn't need a sacrifice for himself, as I said, so he presented his own blood. In other words, he presented his own self-sacrifice through his crucifixion and death. And he presented that before God, again, not to cover his own sin, or else he would have needed two sacrifices. He would have never gotten to God's presence in the first place but it was to cover the sins of the rest of humanity. He offered himself, as the author calls it, a once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and no Levitical priest could ever claim such perfection, either in their own personal purity or in the quality of the sacrifice that they offered. But in Christ, we can rest assured knowing that he provided the perfect sacrifice which can cover every sin and every sinner who will only turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Jesus is also the perfect son. This is the last thing we'll look at. Uh, Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, and this is a powerful verse. Uh, This is really a culminating verse. It says, For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son. Notice how he switches. He doesn't say appoints a different high priest. He says appoints a son made perfect forever. The former high priests were all imperfect appointments. They were weak in the sense that they were subject to suffering and death and sin. But Jesus was the perfect appointment. His indestructible life, as we looked at before, qualified him to fulfill God's promise of a perfect, perpetual priest for us. But Jesus wasn't just a perfect high priest. He was the Son of God, whose perfect relationship with God ensures our eternal life in God's presence, that we too as it says in the beginning of Hebrews, that we too as sons and daughters are brought into glory, that we too can be adopted as sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ. In Christ, we can rest assured because of his perfection. Um, I'm a big fan of jigsaw puzzles. I was thinking about this because that word for fitting that we looked at where it says, uh, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. It's the idea that that he fully met the need. He was the perfect match for our need. 
So it was fitting that, that he would be appointed high priest for us. But it got me thinking about puzzles. Um, I love puzzles. I know the Reikleys love puzzles. Uh, they do puzzles over at their house. Um, I like them when they're at least a thousand pieces, right? Because uh, it gives you something to work on. I don't like the ones that are like all sky. Like that's just too difficult. And I just kind of get defeated. But I do enjoy puzzles. And um, if you're a puzzle fan in here, then you, you're going to know what I'm talking about with this illustration. But if you've ever worked a puzzle, sometimes you get to an empty space. And when you look at the shape of the empty space, you can't imagine in your mind, and maybe I'm just not very good at spatial reasoning, but you cannot imagine how, how a puzzle piece could ever fit into this completely odd puzzle shape, this, this empty shape that, that is forming as you fill in the rest of the puzzle. It, it looks as if you need a puzzle piece. And I, I love this because I found this online because that's sometimes what I end up with. But it looks like you need a puzzle piece with like five or six appendages that's like tiny on one end and it grows huge on the other end. And you're looking at all the extra pieces on the table. You're like, did I lose it? Did it drop on the floor? What is this? I'm never going to finish this. There's no way I have a puzzle piece that could fit in this space. But then once you've completed the puzzle, you know what I'm talking about. You get to the end of the puzzle and you look back at where that bizarre space had been. And you realize that it was really meant for like two pieces that fit together that form this sort of awkward puzzle piece. Um, and then it looks normal. It, it, it's this strange space is perfectly completed by these two puzzle pieces that come together and, and fulfill the puzzle and, and complete it. And you can put it away at that point or frame it or whatever you do. Do you guys frame it? I don't know why people do that. You can never do it again. You like glue the back of it. That's strange. Sorry if you do that. I didn't mean to call you out. Um, but Ancient Judaism, and here's why I use that illustration. Ancient Judaism was like an unsolved puzzle. It was like an incomplete jigsaw puzzle. And so they had a lot of the puzzle pieces laid down that all fit together, but it wasn't completed yet. And so you get all these great, wonderful prophecies, these messianic prophecies and these promises from God. And you're, you're looking at it in ancient Judaism, scratching your head saying, how is God ever going to complete this puzzle? It seems like he would have to do such a bizarre thing to, to finish this out based on what he's told us. And the Messiah was one of those situations, for instance, where uh, the Messiah had to be both a conquering king and a suffering servant. And so some ancient rabbis are, are scratching their heads saying, well, maybe there's two messiahs. Maybe there's, you know, Messiah ben David and Messiah ben Joseph. And, and one's going to be a conquering king and one's going to be a suffering servant. And, and they're trying to figure this out, this odd space that's left over after the Hebrew Bible was completed with Malachi. Uh, the, the Messiah needed to somehow be both human and divine. It speaks to him as both a human and as being divine in, in some sense. And, and you're left scratching your head saying, who could ever fit this empty, this empty strange space that we're looking at? The law of Moses and the Psalms of David also pointed out another strange feature of Messiah, the anointed one, this one who God had promised uh, in the line of David. So in the law of Moses and in specifically Psalm 110.4 that we looked at, we see that, that Messiah would be a priest who would seemingly need to be both permanent and perfect in his priesthood. And, and again, in ancient Judaism, you're left scratching your head saying, but who, who, can, who can be that? Who can fit that? Where is that puzzle piece? Because we, we haven't seen it. The high priests knew it because they were dying and having to hand off their priesthood to someone else. They were bringing the ultimately ineffectual animal of, of unwilling 
animals, goats and bulls, and that's never going to atone for the sins of humanity. And so they're left wondering, how can someone fill this permanent, perfect priesthood? He would need to be both a perfect sacrifice that could truly atone for the sins of humanity rather than these mere animal sacrifices. And on the other hand, he would be the priest who is offering the sacrifice. You're left thinking, what in the world is going on here? But, but now that the puzzle of the Hebrew Bible is complete in Christ, and I have friends who are, who are Messianic Jews, and they refer to themselves as completed Jews because of this very sense. But now that the Hebrew Bible is complete in Christ, we can see how the sinless perfection of Christ allowed him to enter God's presence with his own self-sacrifice for the sins of humanity. Now we see how it works out. Now we can look back at the completed puzzle and say, oh, he was both pieces. And that's how it fit. So Jesus is the perfect son who was also the perfect sacrifice. And we can rest assured because of his perfection. I I think the application for this point is pretty simple. Um, We can rest in the perfection of Christ. This is a reiteration of what we talked about last week. If you're trying to be perfect, then you're not trusting in his perfection. That he was the perfect sacrifice for your sin. If you're beating yourself up, if you're, you know, I mean, this is why Martin Luther kind of scratched his head as he read Romans and Galatians. And why am I atoning for my own sin if he was the perfect sacrifice? If you're doing that, if you're trying to be perfect, you're not trusting in his perfection. But if you're trusting in his perfection as both the son of God and the perfect sacrifice for our sins, then you will be able to rest assured of your salvation in Christ. You won't get rocked up and down, back and forth by circumstances, by your own sinful tendencies, and and constantly be doubting your salvation and wondering, am I even saved? Did I ever even really believe back at camp when I was in, you know, sixth grade? And because we lose faith in ourselves. Because we're not meant to have faith in ourselves, folks. We're meant to, to put our faith in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done and his perfection. So what could that look like? Well, for one thing, we would be quicker to confess and repent of our sins. I guarantee you, if we weren't posturing to one another, trying to look perfect, we would be much quicker to admit our own faults, because we all have them, and our sins, and our sinful tendencies. We would be much more humble-hearted and honest in that sense. We wouldn't try to hide our sins and our struggles. And we'll be able to leave the guilt and the shame of sin at the foot of the cross. We don't have to bear that. It's like the pilgrim's progress. We go back and pick up that big, heavy burden of guilt and shame of our sin. And we we try and carry it ourselves because we're not trusting in his perfect sacrifice. In other words, we're not leaving our guilt and shame at the foot of the cross, having been atoned for. And then we can move forward with the assurance of our salvation and the knowledge that, as we looked at last week, that we have been clothed that we have been robed in a robe of righteousness that is alien to us. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that there's nothing more encouraging in terms of like creating in us a boldness. And there's at the very same time, nothing more humbling than recognizing that we're not perfect, but he is. And in him, we have been made perfect. After the memorial service on Friday, I'll, I'll just end with this. Uh, They were encouraging everyone to write down. I actually used it for my announcements this morning, but they had these little share a message cards 
and they wanted uh, you know, everyone who attended to share a message with uh, his widow and his daughter. Uh, they only had one daughter. Um, and I, we had to run because it was traffic time and we had to get back to Austin to pick up Brantner from the Reikley's pool party. And uh, So anyway, I didn't have time. So I'm going to actually write them a letter so that they can have it just, just as a keepsake and know how much their, their husband and father blessed me personally. Um, but, but when I do, I, I want to point out that I learned three important lessons from Brian's life. Um, and they're going to stay with me for the rest of my life. And I think it's a, a pertinent way to end this, this sermon today with these three lessons I learned. We looked at one of them last week. But number one lesson I learned from my friend Brian's life, it's that I can be honest about my sin struggles and failures because Jesus' perfect sacrifice covers my imperfections. I learned that from Brian. The first time, I told you this last week, the first time I, I went to a men's Bible study, he was sharing his testimony and I felt so uncomfortable because he was sharing like sin struggles and imperfections. And I was like early 20s in my prime of posturing myself as, as this perfect. I wasn't even a Christian. I was telling everyone I'm a Christian and all this. I, did, I didn't even know. I didn't even know what a Christian was. And it's like that exposed something in me going, man, I, I, I could be honest about my, about my sin struggles. I can be honest that I'm not perfect. Number two, lesson. The things of this life are not permanent, so we must turn to Scripture to be reminded of the permanence of the most important things which are ours in Christ. Guys, if we're not in God's Word, we're not, I mean, we're just going to forget. And we're going to get distracted. We have to be in God's Word to be reminded that in light of all the impermanence that you're going to face today and in the days ahead, we have permanence for the most important things in Christ. And then finally, third, that when others are experiencing the impermanence of life circumstances, it's vital that we come alongside them to encourage them and to turn their eyes to Jesus Christ, the Son made perfect forever, whose perfection and permanent priesthood guarantees our eternal salvation. Guys, this is what we're meant to do in the church as a church family, to turn one another's eyes to Jesus This is what we're meant to do with people that don't yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to turn their eyes to Jesus and say, man, I know you're facing the the impermanence of life in whatever situation you're facing, but there is permanence in Christ, and we have an absolute guarantee of our salvation in him. Um, In two weeks, John is actually going to preach, and he's going to bring us on into chapter 8, which is going to be fun, Uh, and we're going to see... Some of the themes um, in chapter 8 in John's passage, the first couple of verses, they're going to run all the way through the rest of this section on Jesus' priesthood that runs all the way through the middle of chapter 10. So I hope you'll be there for that on the 6th of, of June. And uh, next week, as you know, we're not going to be meeting here. We're going to be serving in all those different ways I talked about during the announcements, and we'll get you details on that this week. Uh, would you pray with me?